Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 12 this morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're with us to worship. And if you're online joining us live stream, we want to welcome you as well. Uh, We did, you know, I would say we because we're collectively a group here. And what I do, you do. So, you know, we tried to get through 30 verses last week and we failed miserably. That was really on you. Um, But anyway, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. But we are now going to, (laughs) Lord willing, finish this chapter. Uh, We got through six verses. So, you know, statistically speaking, doesn't look very good. But we're going to do our best to get through. So stand with me, if you would, please. John chapter 12. This is an incredible account. And I believe that, that uh, this, is a, this is a part of uh, Jesus' ministry that every one of us can relate to. And Jesus is being relatable to us in, in the way that he deals with uh, th- this hour that has now come for him. And so here we go. We're going to start in verse 20 to get the context. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some, gen- were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was in Bethsaida in Galilee, And asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We know that this is a heavy time in the the life of Jesus. As death is imminent. He understands what the hour brings. And yet, Lord, we can glean some incredible things from our Savior, from our Lord. As he approaches his hour and he he does it with the mindset of bringing glory to you. God, would you help us this morning to recognize that we were created to bring you glory. That our whole life is meant to glorify you. In every single detail, in every circumstance that we find ourselves in, that we can glorify you. We ask you to meet each one of us individually where we are today, Lord. And we ask you to just speak into our lives. And we thank you that you promised to meet each one of us where we are. And so we're looking forward to what you would have for each one of us this morning. So come by your spirit now, we pray, and just speak into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You've heard uh, some people say that they live one day at a time, right? I just live life one day at a time. That's great, but I think it's more biblical to say that I'm living one hour at a time, one moment at a time, because we know that we serve a God that can change anything in a moment's notice. Everything can change. And so we come to every circumstance, to every situation with the idea that there's hope. We can trust Jesus. 
that he knows what he's doing. And the reason that we know this is because Jesus himself lived his life by the hour. He knew that there was a specific hour that he was designed and fashioned for. He knew that his life was meant for something great. He understood that he would be the savior of the world. And oftentimes we look at Jesus and we say, well, of course, he's God and he's Jesus. So, of course, he understood the hour that he was created for. And he he would be created for greatness because he's God. But here's what I would say is that you're created in the image of God. You're created in the likeness of him. And therefore, you too, just like Jesus, are created for an hour and you are created for greatness. You know, God doesn't do anything mediocre, folks. So if he created you, which he did, you're not an accident. He created you for something specific. Then you can rest assured that, that, you know what, he is going to see that hour through in your life and that you can bring him glory. Now, we don't know what the hour is for each of us. And I would say that, you know, oftentimes in our life, I think it's more so like hours. I think there's monumental moments in every one of our lives that are It's more than just one thing. It's like God has to take us from one place to another, one stepping stone to another. And so you have an hour where you come to salvation. And that's a big hour, folks. That is an incredible hour. That is an hour of greatness in your life when you come and you rest in the Savior of the world who was pinned to a tree for you, that his blood covers you and cleanses you, sprinkles you. He completely wipes away your sin. That is is an incredible hour in the life of a person. Some people don't get beyond that hour, do they? Some people live their whole life in this whole, you know, place right there at the foot of the cross, which is great. But I would say that, listen, God has more for you. It, it is about the cross, but that's where it starts. That's where generate, regeneration starts. That's where I am born again to a living hope. That is where God meets me where I am. He cleanses me of my sin, and he puts me on mission for something, something specific that he designed and created you for. And it is something great. And, and so I would say that there are monumental moments in our lives where we look at the hour in which we were created and designed for. Because we're not Jesus and we don't live perfectly, you know, God, there, there is this stepping stone thing. There's, it's a progressive revealing of his plan for your life. Jesus knew, you know, as he grew, he knew exactly what he was called to do. And I will say that you too can know that through the seeking of the Lord. It's by communion with the Father that he reveals himself to us, and we can know. Jesus said here in John chapter 12, as we begin here, that um, by way of some Greeks that had come to him, my hour has now come. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're thinking, wow, this is an incredible monumental moment in the life of Jesus because we're often listening to him say, my hour has not yet come, and yet here... This thing's bothering me. Is it bothering you or is it just me? It's, it's us. It's us because we're collective, remember? But uh, anyway, he said, you know, his disciples were used to him saying, my hour is not yet come. And th- here we have him say, oh, my hour has come. And I find it interesting. And if you missed last week, you can pick it up on our iTunes or Google or you can go to YouTube and, and watch it on our channel. But the, the reality is that it was the pivotal moment came when Jesus re- was revealed that his hour had come. It was by way of some seeking Gentiles. And you can listen to the, some of the reasoning behind why I think that is. But what we do know is that Jesus understood that now the Gentiles were coming to seek him, that his hour had come. It's as if God was saying, 
you know, when the, when the Gentiles start to seek you, Lord, uh, Jesus, he called, you know, God calls him Lord, you know, G- Lord, you know, he, he does call him God in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter one. But anyway, when he says, Jesus, here's, here, here's this moment. Now, when these Gentiles start to seek you, you're going to know that the age of the law is going to be closed. And that's going to start to close the age of the law because the age of the church, which is the, the age of grace, dispensationalism, if you, uh, you know, the age of the, that's where we live today, the age of grace, the age of the church. And at the point in which Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that began the church age. Jesus knew that the age of the law was being closed and that grace was coming on the earth. Now, where did grace come from? From the cross. It came from the cross. Jesus Christ liberated us from the condemnation of the law. It doesn't mean that, you know, like we just chuck the law out, but we're, we're not called to live meticulously by the law because Jesus Christ fulfilled every single jot and tittle for us. And so we're thankful this morning that we are saved by faith, through, by grace through faith, right? It's by grace first. Because let me tell you something, without grace, there is no salvation. Without the grace of God, which is Jesus Christ, there is no salvation, And so you can't be saved by the law. Every single Jew that was trying to, attempting to live by the law, and I say attempting because they failed greatly, but every one of them was looking to the Savior to come. They weren't thinking that those who understood the law understood that salvation wasn't in the law. They understood that there was one coming that would redeem them, and yet there was still this system that God had put in place to reveal sin. That's the point. But Jesus understands, now my, my, my hour has come. This age is closing. And now there is going to be a, a fresh work that God is going to do where he, you know, the Old Testament is the visitation of God. This, the New Testament, the age of grace, is the inhabitation of God within us where the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. We are born again. And, and it was at that point Jesus understood these things. And he knew that it was going to cost him greatly. It was going to cost him his life. The hour had come. He said to be glorified. Now, this glorification comes in, in a, a peculiar way. It comes through death on a cross. Jesus would be crucified. Now, I don't know about you, but I could think of a million other ways to be glorified rather than death on the cross. Anybody with me with that? You know, it's like glorification by crucifixion. No, thank you. I don't think I want it. That's a brutal way to be glorified. And yet we know that was the plan for Jesus. Isaiah 53.10, we read it last week. That it pleased God to crush him. Why would it please the father to crush his son? Because there was no other way. That's why. For redemption. He did it for you. For God so loved the world. And we quote this all the time. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So loved so loved, like so loved that we don't even comprehend the so loving the Father would, would love us with that he would give his own son, that he would lay his life down for us. And so what we find is that there is glorification through suffering. There's glorification through suffering. And we, we sit there and we go, man, that's hard for me to understand. I don't like that. I, I, it, it doesn't sound right. Like God, didn't God create us, you know, for, for, for comfort, ease, and pleasure? Wasn't that why he created us? No. God created us to bring glory to him. 
That's why you were created, to bring glory to him. Sounds egotistical, but when you understand the attributes of God fully at work, you understand that God is not egotistical. But he created you and formed you to bring glory to him, and in so doing is the best life you could ever live. You know that? It's like God can, can equally get all the glory in the world through your life, and you can have the best life you could ever live by doing that, by fulfilling what he created you for. God created us to bring him glory. And that doesn't just mean in the good times. That also means in the bad times. There are hours that we are going to face in our lives. There are hours that God has written into that from the foundation of the world, our life to bring himself glory. So there are things that we will encounter that we will not understand. We won't get. But God will say, it's for my glory. It's for my glory. The way that we glorify the Father in those moments is to suffer like Jesus suffered. And that is to be faithful to the call, whatever that means. Faithful to the call. Do not abandon your faith because in the midst of your suffering. It's, it's the picture of Job, right? We have a choice when we come to suffering, folks. And, and we're not really even going to talk about where it comes from. Did God create it? Did, did the enemy create it? I think it's both. I think there are, there are both. Jesus was clearly written into the plan that he would suffer, and it was the Father's plan. Uh, the enemy orchestrated all that. You know, we're not going to get into all of that, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, there are things in our lives that we'll encounter, regardless of where they came from, that if, if we do it like Jesus did it, we will bring the Father glory, and we will become more like Jesus in the process. And so, as we look at these things, we, we think like, wow, God can do incredible things even in the midst of hard times. Paul, uh, the, the Lord told Ananias about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my, my name. Paul understood that his life was called to a life of suffering. And that was not just him. That is all Christians were called to that. Acts chapter 14, verses 22, after Paul got stoned in Lystra and they left him outside the city for dead, he, he, he came back to life. He, he walked back in the city and he began to encourage the brothers and sisters there. And he said this in Acts chapter 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, through much pressure, through much hardship, we will enter the kingdom of God. God is totally in control of everything in our lives, and that means he's totally in control of our suffering as well. And I'm thankful that I'm found in the loving hands of a father in the midst of my suffering rather than in the hands of an enemy who wants to devour me. I am thankful that God is in control of everything, and we can trust in that. God knew from the foundation of the world that he designed us not just to su survive through suffering, but to thrive through it as well. Jesus Christ is the greatest example of that, as he suffered greatly, but he triumphed victoriously. It's the picture for us in the life that God has called us to. Jesus said here in verse 26, 
he, he tells us that, you know, the same lot is for us. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What he's saying is that God's plan for your life will include some glorification, just like Jesus's. And that glorification may not come in the way that you think it would. It may, it's going to come just like Jesus came because he said, the servant is not greater than my master, than its master. You're going to walk the same road Jesus walked. It's a road marked with suffering. We all know this well. And yet, we also know that we can have hope through it because Jesus Christ, last time I checked, is not in the grave, but he's risen again. Amen? And so we have hope in every ounce of suffering that we suffer. So may we live our lives the way that Jesus did in glorifying the Father through everything that he went through, every, every single thing. Now, he talks about us following him. Here, it, it's talking about a path of denial of self, to die to self. It's really speaking unto death. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, you've got to follow me through the grave into, it, 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 to be risen again. You're going to follow me unto death. It's a death to self that he's calling us to. That's how we follow Jesus. So may we do that just as Jesus did. Now, we come to our text this morning where Jesus continues to reveal his hour uh, for which he was born. And I want to share three things with you from here. Uh, parent, uh, kids, don't tell your parents this if you're in here this morning, but you were born to walk in some trouble. You were born to walk in some trouble. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. Look at verse 27 here. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel was, has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. One thing that we know about Jesus is that he was a prayer warrior. Oft, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus and you consider it, you often see him praying. He got up early in the morning before everybody else and he went and prayed. He went to bed after everybody else because he was praying. Jesus was a praying man. You might sit here this morning and you, and you say, man, I just don't have any time to pray. Oh, really? Maybe you should follow Jesus' example because I trust you that he was very, very busy. He was very busy, but he understood that everything that he was going to do was going to be birthed through the Father. And he even tells us in here, I have done everything I've said. I've said is, is the Father's voice being spoken through me. It's through communion that that happens. Jesus spent a lot of time on his knees, folks. He spent a lot of time on his knees. He probably praying for his disciples. Lord, oh, help them, man. They need help, God. Please. But he was a prayer warrior. And notice, after he understands that his hour has come, he now, uh, to be glorified, he begins to pray. This is what we know as bowing before the battle. Jesus knew that the battle would be fierce upon the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we understand that it was so fierce that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, as it were. You know, he, under, he was under tremendous amount of stress. He understood that the only way he was going to make it through that was to bow before the battle. He completely and totally surrendered himself to the Father. Listen, if you're going to get through the things that God 
has allowed in your life, the only way you're going to get through them is you're bowing before the battle, if you're bowing in the battle, if you're bowing after the battle. We need to be praying constantly about these things. Now, Jesus, he, we see here, it's a sincere prayer. He's not trying to fake God out. Well, it's my hour, and so glorify me. You know, Lord, I am so Christian that I can't even help myself. So I am so strong and not fearful at all, Lord. I'm not, I have no trouble at all about the... That's not what he said. You see what he says here. His first words after understanding that an hour had come is, now my soul is troubled. It's troubled. That word in the Greek is terasso. It means deeply stirred or agitated. It's expressing an acute emotional distress or turbulence. Listen, Jesus was incredibly disturbed about what he was about to encounter. Now, we, 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 we say, oh, well, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be afraid. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to, 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 to face something so severe that, yeah, he knows exactly what it's like. He was troubled. He was troubled. And as Christians, we, don't, we, we like to say, well, Jesus was never afraid. I don't know. That word kind of seems to me like he was a little bit afraid, but in, in a non-sinful way. In a non-sinful way. The Bible speaks about fear. It speaks about fear a lot, being godly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That kind of fear. Jesus had a perfect fear, but he had fear. There, if Jesus didn't have that, he couldn't, the writer of Hebrews couldn't have said in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He couldn't have been able to do that. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. If Jesus had never faced fear, then he wouldn't have been tempted in the exact same ways that we had been tempted. I'm not here telling you that Jesus was, you know, he, he has a perfect fear in this. And I don't know what that looks like because I have an imperfect fear. When I fear, it, 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 I have the opportunity to turn it to sin really quick. Jesus, he was troubled. He was distressed. He was, and not just here, but in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. He was troubled. He understands the trouble that you face. He knows the difficulty. He's been there. He's done that. He understands in your weaknesses the kind of stress that comes on your body and what he's telling you is that he will meet you because he sympathizes with you he understands he knows and he will meet you right where you are jesus was distressed about the suffering that awaited him although he was fully god we see here that he is fully man he's fully man here the humanity of christ is being brought out here as we see him begin to pray about the cross and, what, and the suffering that he will endure for it. He understands your suffering. He can identify with you. And because of that, Hebrews 2.18 tells us, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. In the midst of your suffering, Jesus Christ is your rescue. He's your rescue. He understands what you're going through. He is our comfort because he can comfort us with a comfort that he himself was comforted with. He knows the things that you will, you will go through, the stresses that you will have on your life, and he can meet you there, and he is able to help. He desires to help. The Bible says 
We simply need to come to him. Where did Jesus run? Where was he running? To the feet of the Father. Where are you running today? When you face suffering, where do you run? Where are you running? We need to run to the arms of Jesus. They're open and he's ready to help, but we have to come to him. We got to come. Jesus will help you through the things that you were born for. He'll get you through it. He'll see you through it. He's an anchor for our soul, the peace that we need in the midst of the storm. Listen, if you're suffering this morning, he can sympathize. He's with you, and he will help you if you call upon him. You call upon his name. Notice what it says Jesus doesn't pray for here. He doesn't pray for deliverance, does he? Lord, deliver me from my suffering. No, no, Jesus understands that he's created for this hour. So he doesn't say, Father, get me out of this hour. He, as we often pray, right? We pray that because the physical man is weak. Listen, the physical man wants to avoid all pain at all cost. He cries out, Father, save me from this hour. But the spiritual man, the spiritual man within us, he understands that we are born for some trouble. We understand that the spiritual man within us understands that we were born for some trouble, that the trouble that we encounter is going to bring God glory ultimately, and it's going to make you more like Jesus. We understand this. And yet, oftentimes, when we encounter hardship, our prayer is, deliver me. Deliver me from this hour. The question we should have in the moment is, Lord, is this the hour you have for me? And if so, glorify your name. Jesus said, you know, it's my hour. This is the purpose that I've been created for. So, Father, let your name be glorified. May that be our prayer in the midst of our hardships. May we say, Father, glorify your name. Be glorified. You know, and and you can only do this in the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Listen, our flesh crumbles at suffering. Our flesh crumbles crumbles at hardship, but the Spirit of God rises up and strengthens us, you know, and He gives us capacity to do things and to get through and to have the boldness to stand before the Father and say, you glorify your name. Don't you take me out of this. You glorify your name. And and you make it all about Him. Last time I checked, it's not about me at all. At all. It's about Him. And so, you know, may our lives be lived with a constant prayer of, Lord, whatever I face today, glorify your name. Glorify your name. That doesn't mean we don't pray for healing. That doesn't mean we don't pray for miracles. That doesn't mean we don't pray for the Lord to show up. We're asking him to glorify his name in whatever means he desires to do. You want to heal me, Lord? Heal me. I'm trusting you. You know, we're not, we're not blab it and grab it or name it and claim it. We don't do that. We trust God because we know that they, we are created for some trouble. And that through that trouble, the Father's going to get glory. And so we, we just stand as Jesus did and say, glorify your name, Father. I love, the, I love the, <laughs> the song, blessed be your name, on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. I love that verse because that is the, the Christian chorus, man. Blessed be your name, God. Be glorified in everything that we do. Praise be to you, Lord. May your name be glorified through this. And here's what you can rest in, is that whatever it is that you're going through is in his hands. 
He's in control. He's in full control. And so you're not found, you know, in the, in the hands of the enemy, and he's, not allowed, he's only allowed to do whatever the Lord allows him to do. You're in the hands of the Father who loves you, who cares for you, and who is ultimately waiting to bring you into glory. The Bible tells us precious are precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. He cannot wait for you to enter into glory. And yet some of us are holding on to this world with everything we got. And let me tell you something. It's nothing. I don't care the best day you had in this world is, is, is like the slums in heaven, man. It's, it's just ridiculous. Don't hold on to this world. Lord, I want to be with you. The Lord wants you to be with him. He desires for you to be with him. Listen, if you're going through trouble today, just know that it's a matter of glory. You can't get gold without the furnace. You can't get pure gold without going through the furnace. You can't get a diamond without pressure and heat. You can't be made like Jesus unless you go through some trouble. And it is in God's hands. That trouble is in his hands, and he knows what he's doing with it. So you just trust him as you go through these things. Your trouble is intended to make you more like Jesus and bring glory to the Father. May that be our sincere prayer as Jesus cried out, glorify your name. Now, as Jesus says this, it's interesting because, boom, the Father responds. Uh, you know, as, immediately as Jesus is praying, the Father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. God answers our prayer. You know, he, he may not answer it audibly, but here we see that as Jesus seeks the Father, the Father responds. God will always respond to you. It may not be the what you want to hear, but he will respond. And notice, it says, Jesus, your life has glorified me already. You, you have been glorifying me with your life. You know, this is the third time that the Father speaks about the Son. The first time at his baptism where he says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The second time is in the, you know, the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are up there and, and you know, whoever those two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, whoever, you know, and, and here we have the Father popping out and he says, this is my son, listen to him. And here we have the third time where the Father says, speaks. To, now, here's the thing, is the, these two were primarily indirect. They weren't speaking, th those voices were not speaking direct to Jesus. This voice, as the Father speaks, is directly to Jesus. I, he's responding to him, saying, glorify your name. And he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God will speak specifically to you about your prayer. You just need to come to him and pray, and you need to trust him. God responds to our prayers. The Father needs us to understand that the glorification, the cross, is not a result of the father being upset with Jesus because he's done something wrong because that was sort of the, the, the culture of the day. If, if you were suffering some hardship, that was because God wasn't pleased with you because you weren't living your life right, you know, and all this kind of stuff. That was kind of the, the, the surface level um, theological position uh, in Judaism. And so if you were born with some disease, then that was because the father is judging you, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, G the father says here, I want you to understand that the son is not being judged. He's not being judged because of something he's done. He's not, he's not done anything. He's glorified me in his life. 
and I'm going to glorify him as he is lifted up. So he starts to talk to us about salvation. He starts to talk to us about Jesus being the sacrifice for the world. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. His death and resurrection becomes the peace treaty between you and I and God. And as a result of that, the Father is glorified. His Son laid down His life. There is no excuse for for someone not to be made right with God. God has done it all. He has given you a way to the Father through the Son to lay down your life and to give it up and to believe in Jesus and His death and resurrection. And by His wounds we are healed. We are completely made right. There is peace there. The Father will be glorified through the death of His Son. And, 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 and then, you know, th- these people go, whoa, where'd that come from? Who said that? Oh, it's got to be an angel. You know, we start to try to explain supernatural things. And, and you know, we're like, oh, oh yeah, it's got to be this or that. And, and Jesus says, He didn't say that for me. I don't need the comfort. I know what I'm doing. I know what I know. I already know I have a perfect communion with the Father through the Spirit of God. Listen, you may not hear God clearly today because you don't have that communion with the Father through the Spirit of God. You know, you're not communing with the Father through the Spirit. The Spirit seeks, uh, he searches the deep things of God. He knows everything about God. You want to know something about God? You seek Him through the Spirit. You commune with Him through the Spirit. He's the revealer, He's the teacher. As we commune with the Father through the Spirit, the Lord meets, uh, meets us where we are, and He speaks clearly to us, and He speaks to Jesus here. And He tells Him, and He tells everybody there, this is not a result of anything Jesus has done. This is a result of the sin of the world, that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world, and He will be glorified on the cross through death and resurrection. Jesus, notice what He says here, that through suffering, the ruler of this world, who is Satan, will be cast out. This means that Satan is going to be stripped of his crown. Right here, he's going to be dethroned. Dethroned. No more uh, kingship on this earth. This is not a progressive kingship in, in a sense. Jesus has totally stripped him of his kingship. Completely, at this point, at the cross. You know, here's the enemy who sees Jesus surface. He tries to tempt him to give him the things of the world and all that. He can't make Jesus fall that way. And so what he decides to do is kill him. I'll crucify him. Hashtag backfire. It's exactly what the... It's like that was the plan, huh? Imagine that. Look, you're doing exactly what the Father planned to do from the foundation of the world, that the, the Lamb of God would be slain from the foundation of the world. Hello? I got the plan. I know exactly what's going to happen, and that will produce salvation for everyone. In fact, in his effort to keep his kingdom, he completely and totally not only was stripped of his crown, but he was stripped of his people. He was stripped of you and I because redemption came through the blood of a lamb, Jesus Christ. Talk about backfire. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. This is not about your work. It has nothing to do with your work. When you come to the Father, you have nothing to offer him except for his son. 
He's the one that strips principalities and powers. He's the one that overcomes death in our life and sin in our life. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that we are clothed in, that as we are, we're found at peace with the Father through him and him alone. Satan is dethroned, and although he's still at work in this world, he is at work as a dethroned king trying to keep his kingdom. He is trying to kill, steal, and destroy, but understand, he's dethroned. He's dethroned. He's still the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. You know, the question is, does, does Satan was cast out of heaven? In terms of an angel, yes, he was cast out of heaven. He fell from heaven like lightning, Jesus said. But understand that the heaven that is currently there is defiled, and the enemy still comes before the Father. We see this in Scripture. We see this in Job, the book of Job, where Satan comes before the Father. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 tells us that eventually, the tribulation period, the beginning of the tribulation period, the devil will be cast out of heaven. He will no longer be able to have face time with God. He's completely cast out. He's dethroned right now, but now he's the accuser of the brethren. Now he comes before the throne of God and points down at you and I and says, look at these schmucks. Not you, me. He's, he calls me a schmuck, not you. I didn't mean you, but I mean, look at this guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Look at him. He's standing up there right now. How can you use him? And Jesus says, I can. Don't worry. I can use him because he's covered in my blood. And so one day the enemy will be completely, permanently cast out of heaven, but right now he has visitation rights to go in there. I don't get all that, but that's the truth. Now, here's what is we have to be careful of when we start talking about Jesus cast the enemy out. We don't want to get into Satanology. We don't want to get into the study of Satan. Let's figure out what he can and he can do. No, no, that would be the direct opposite of what we're called to do to get into Christology, what he has done and what he is doing. We don't have to worry about the enemy because he's been dethroned. He's been cast out. Now, I, you know, what he can do and what he can't do in the world, who cares? Who cares? Because ultimately, we're in the hands of a loving Father that is working our life, and we trust in Him and Him alone. doesn't matter. We're not trying to fight against the enemy. That battle's been won already. Jesus won that battle on the cross. And so everything that we face in this world now, we're, just, we're not trying to gain victory in. Jesus has given us victory. We simply step into that. We need to focus on what Jesus is doing, not what Satan is doing. Listen to this. Satan has power, but Jesus has more. Satan is still at work, but Jesus is too. You know, God is in full control of everything of what Satan does. Satan is not sovereign. Jesus is. Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He is in control of everything, and we can trust in him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. All knees will bow to his name, even Satan will bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And eventually, one day, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever, eternally. Until that day, we rest in our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And we don't worry about the enemy and what he can and he can't do. We trust in the Lord and know that he is at work. We have victory in our troubles, Christian. And, and here we find Jesus in the midst of his trouble saying the same thing. Father's going to be glorified as I'm being lifted up. Again, it's the picture of Moses with the serpent on the pole back in the Old Testament. That was a picture of Jesus Christ. As, you know, the, the children of Israel were grumbling, complaining. Have you done that lately? Probably don't want to do that. God might 
release some serpents into your life or something. But serpents go into the, the camp and they start biting people and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And the Lord takes, uh, tells Moses, instructs him to make this pole with a bronze serpent upon it. And he says, when I rise this pole up, you look to this pole and you'll be saved. It's a picture of the cross. Listen, the, the brood of vipers may come into your life. They might bite you, but we have victory in the one that hung on the pole for us. So we can trust in that. The enemy has no power. But, but the, Jesus is saying here, I am physically going to be lifted up before all, you know, I'm going to be made a public spectacle before man. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to suffer. But God is going to use it for his glory. Listen, we were born for some trouble, yes. Secondly, if you're taking notes, we were also born to walk in the light. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus answered them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. Now, Jesus, after he's done praying and declaring this truth, the crowd now comes to question his theology. Don't you love that? Questioning Jesus' theology. Hold on a second, Jesus. Now, now we heard from the law, you know, that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to set up his kingdom. So we're, we're, we're kind of expecting that. You know, that's in the law, Jesus. And it, <laughs> you're questioning the, the theological position of Jesus and what he's saying here. And... Um, how can you say that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? You're not making any sense. No, he's making perfect sense. And what I would tell you is that you don't want to get in a theological battle with Jesus. You know, when the Word of God says something, stop trying to make your theology say, make it say something else. We do that. Oh, I don't like what that says. I don't understand what that says, and so therefore I'm going to bend it to make it say what fits my theology you're arguing with Jesus. Hashtag, that's dumb. Don't do that. Do not argue with Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. You know, He is telling us here, these guys don't understand. They don't get it. And, and anytime you, I love what Pastor Chuck said. We, we as Christians live in this kind of realm where we have to be comfortable in the unknown. Like, we have to be comfortable that there's just some things that we don't know, that we don't understand. And that's Okay. You don't have to understand everything. I love what Pastor Chuck used to always say. He said, when I encounter things that I don't understand, I fall back on those things that I do. You know, the things that I understand about God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cling on to in my moments of, of the things that I don't understand. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand what's going on right now, Lord, but I, but I do understand that you love me. I do understand that you're in control. And I do understand that you're going to see me through. And so I'm going to trust you. You're going to work it out for my good. And, you know, it's unbelief to, that would tell you, that would say, I don't know how you can do that. That's unbelief. We need to approach God in faith and say, Lord, I'm going to trust it, even though I don't get it. And, you know, so we live in this kind of weird situation. But these guys, rather than saying, I don't get it, are saying, you don't get it. And we can do that theologically as we enter the Word of God, and people do it all the time. Let that not be of us. Let, let us not be those kind of people. Let us be Bereans. Study the Scriptures. Show yourself approved. Get into the Word of God. And when you have questions about something, 
You know, don't wrestle with the text and make it say what you want. Don't do that. Let the text say what it says and receive it. Don't, don't approach it unbelievingly. Here these guys are telling Jesus he's not making sense. He's saying, I make perfect sense. One preacher said it like this. He's preaching it better than they're hearing it. He's preaching it better than they're hearing it. They're not receiving it. They're, they're the ones misguided. So Jesus says, you're wrong. The Messiah is going to be lifted up. He's not going to establish his kingdom right here, right now. He will eventually, but that's not here, that's not now. You know, and, and you know, he, he could have just flicked out a little Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 and said, why don't you read these and then come back and see me. But, you know, rather than that, Jesus, he doesn't get into arguments with people. He reaches people. And I love that about the way that he deals with this situation. You know, they have clearly rejected him. They are mocking him by saying, who is this son of man that you're talking about? Who's this savior that you're bringing up, man? This is not our savior. Who, who are you? They're fully rejecting him at this point. They're rejecting the idea of the Messiah that Jesus is presenting, which is him. They're rejecting him. And, and Jesus, rather than, you know, uh, you know, getting upset, he just tries to guide him back. He tries to reach him back with the truth, and he simply says, the light is here. The light is here. Walk in it. Just receive it. The light's right before you. If you receive it, you'll understand it, but you've got to be willing to come by faith and receive it, that maybe you don't know everything about the Messiah and his coming. Why don't you just step into faith and receive this? I love it. When, when the world throws shade at Jesus, he throws light. I love that. When the world throws shade at you, don't throw shade back. Throw light at them. Throw the truth, the word of God. But Jesus says, when he speaks about light here, he's obviously speaking about himself. He already said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me does not walk, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And he was saying, you will not be able to walk in this light forever. One day that door will be closed. You will not be able to walk in the light. What he's saying is there should be a sense of urgency to walk in the light. There shouldn't be this, I have time to walk in the light at some point in my life. I'll, I'll get to it someday. You need to get to it today because it, the reality is you don't know when God's going to call you home. You don't know when that door's going to shut. And you might think like, well, I kind of believe now, but how much damage can the enemy do to your belief system when you're not walking with God, when you're not seeking Him in truth, when you're not listening to the Holy Spirit? He can strip it all away, folks. He can strip it all away. The more you hear the gospel, the harder you are to receive it. So he's telling him, man, walk in the light today. There should be a sense of urgency to walk into the light, to embrace the light and he says, once you do, man, you'll be, become sons of light. You'll be born again. You'll take the light of the world, who is Jesus, who will come and inhabit you, and then you'll become the light of the world. And God will use you to, he's going to use you to draw people. He's going to use you as an instrument of saying, this is what light looks like. That's why Jesus said here, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is telling us as Christians the vital importance of not only us receiving the light, 
and allowing it into our lives, but then the importance of us walking in that light. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, the world is the way that it is because you're the way that you are. If Christians aren't walking in the light, then the world isn't seeing light. They're hearing about the light, but they're not seeing the light. What is that called? Hypocrisy. And you hear it all the time, people talking about the hypocrisy of the church and da-da-da-da-da. So let's strip the excuses. Let's just not walk in darkness. You've been transformed. You've been changed. Christ has, the light has come in. Now walk in that light. You're called to walk in newness of life, Paul says in the book of Romans. Newness of life. It's the light. Walk in the light. So important that Christians do that. Listen, if you're not walking in the light this morning, you need to repent. Turn to the Lord. Turn over that darkness. And then start walking with the Lord. Start walking in the light because you will be off mission until you do that. You know that? If you're, if you're, if you're living in darkness today, you're off mission. And you're not going to be able to get back on mission until you repent of that sin and get it out of your life. Now, I'm not talking about the sins that we stumble in and, you know, we trip up over and then we're, we're like, Lord, oh, man, forgive me for that. I'm talking about the sins that we're living in, the sins that we're habitually doing. You know, I could read the list in, in Galatians chapter 5 or whatever, but the, the reality is, is, you know, are you living in anger? You living in anger, you're living in sin. You need to get rid of that. You know, are you living in a sexual sin? Well, you're living in darkness. Jesus says you've got to turn that over. You can't, as a Christian, go, well, I'm covered by the blood. I can do what I want. That is not somebody who understands salvation at all. At all. You're not saved to live your life however you want. You're saved to a living hope to make Jesus known in this world. You're, you're, you're saved so that you can bring glory to God, not so that you can live in darkness. And so somebody who would... Who would, who would Receive the golden ticket and then live in darkness. Probably didn't receive the golden ticket in the first place. Who says, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to walk in my own ways and I'm going to do my own thing. I don't have any regard for God. That's not the spirit. The spirit's not in a person like that. So if you're walking in darkness today, the Lord would tell you, listen, you will never be on mission until you get rid of that darkness in your life. You got to get rid of it. You got to turn it over. And that might mean radicalism for some of you. I don't know what that looks like. But, you know, we all dabble in darkness, let's be honest. You know, and, and if we're honest before the Lord, he could point out every one of them. <laughs> but he, he won't. He may. Sometimes he gives words of knowledge and stuff like that, not to scare, but because he cares, because he loves us. So here's the reality is he wants us to get out of the darkness and get into the light and walk in light because we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. If you're walking in darkness as a believer, repent, turn away, and then walk as that born-again receiver of light in the light. You were born to walk in light, and you were born again to walk in light. If you're taking notes, our third point, you were born to believe. You were born to believe. Look at verse 36. Jesus now gives us some information about the light. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw God's glory. He was speaking of the Father there. We were born to believe, folks. It means that we were called to become sons of light. And we come by believing. That's how we're converted. We're born again by believing in, in Jesus Christ. To be a son of light means that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not going to become a son of light by being a good person, you will not do it. There is no amount of laws that you can keep to be born as a son of light. You have to believe. It's, it's by faith. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We have to receive, believe, and receive the crucified and risen Savior of the world. We must believe, and that's how we are born again. Yet no matter what Jesus did here in this, to this crowd, it didn't matter what he said, they didn't believe it. He could have given them the, the clearest answers, and they wouldn't have believed because they have unbelieving hearts. It says here that, you know, it didn't matter what he did. He did all kinds of miraculous signs before them, and yet they still did not believe because they had unbelieving hearts. They didn't want to believe. You don't want to believe. You will not believe. Listen, we fool ourselves with this. We fool ourselves often with this idea of, well, I don't believe that. So what are we saying, really? I don't like that, so I'm not going to receive it so that I can do what I want. I don't, believe, I don't believe God does that. I don't believe he does that at all. Why? Because you don't like it? Is that why? Because it, it's affecting your life in some way? It's hindering something that you want to do that's outside of his will? But you don't like that? Hold on a second. Who are you serving? Who are you following at that point? You're following yourself. We need to believe and just trust, trust the Scriptures. Most of these people had already decided that they didn't want what Jesus was offering. They didn't need what Jesus was offering. Man, they were, they were totally mistaken. John goes on to tell us here that this was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's saying, man, God presented, he revealed himself. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to know him. He revealed himself through his word. They didn't want to hear the message. He revealed himself through works. They didn't believe that those were of the Lord. They, they even have the audacity to tell Jesus that the things that he did were of the devil. That's how unbelieving these people were. Don't think that these were uh, pagan worshipers. These were Jews. These were people that were serving God in his temple daily who were trying to follow after the Lord in the law. And God is revealing the Savior of the world that's, that the, 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 the law spoke of, and they were rejecting him. They're not believing him. And it didn't matter what he did or what he said, they would not believe. And so then it goes on to say that because they would not believe, they could not believe. Now, this is tough for us to get. This is, this is what I talked about last week with Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. But it wasn't until Pharaoh hardened his heart first that God would harden his heart. And so, you know, when you read the account of Pharaoh, you can go back and read it. But the idea was that, you know, God's, you, you can read over and over again where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart against the message and the signs. 
against the spokesperson and the signs that were being presented before him. He should have known that this was divine. And, and so it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, and then after a few, few times of that, I don't know how many times it is, maybe three, three or four times, it says, and after God had presented the message and had presented some, some signs, it says then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it wasn't until Pharaoh had already decided to harden his heart. What I'm saying to you is God is not stripping free will from people. He's not stripping the idea of saying, you know, you can't come to me. I've, I've created some people to go to heaven. I've created some people to go to hell. No, God has given you a choice. You know, this is the balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and where that lies. And God says, you know what, I've given you the ability to believe, but if you will not believe, I'll make it sure that you, you don't believe. But, it, but, but you know, it, it, it lies within the balance of these things, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What I understand this to be is that as you come to God with an unbelieving heart and you reject the gospel, and God knows, you know, the end from the beginning. He knows you from the foundation of the world. He knows if you're in the book of life and if you're not in the book of life. He knows all about you. But he gives you an opportunity. And he, he lets you live your life and he reaches into your life constantly. Even those who will not believe, that he already knows will not believe, he's still reaching in their life, drawing them, you know, in all of this, and yet they will not believe. And so at some point the Lord says, well, your judgment for unbelieving is that you cannot believe. It's a judgment from the Lord. You know, and ultimately there will be, you know, severe punishment after that. You know, there, there's a place called hell. But when we look at the whole scheme of things, it's not the Lord that sends people there. It's a choice. People decide to do it. God only confirms the choice that man has made. And, you know, that's the best that I can understand that, to be honest. And it's a difficult thing, but yet I believe that that's the way that it works. That somehow in God's sovereignty and man's responsibility weighs this thing where the Lord allows a person to, to be unbelieving for a period of time, and then he seals the deal on their heart. And he says, okay, because you will not believe, therefore you cannot believe. And it was prophesied that that's the way it would be. You know, the, the people of God would reject him. They, they, they were trying to find sanctuary in their nationality and their religion rather in their God. And people are still doing that today, doing the exact same thing. They will not believe in Jesus, but they'll believe in the institution and they'll believe in their ability to do something, to get their, work their way to the Lord. And so they'll reject all everything else. And eventually the Lord will say, okay, your, your decision is sure. Well, what, what, when does that happen? That's called, by the way, unbelieving. That's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is the only unpardonable sin. It's the only thing that God can't, can't save you from is your unwillingness to believe. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There is no coming back from that. You know, at some point, when you hear the gospel over and over again, you harden your heart, you harden your heart, I'm going to close the door on you. God has called us to believe. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, even many of the, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved glory that comes from man more than the glory of God. Notice that even though they believed, they would not receive him. They believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him. Well, that's not lordship. 
That's not the step. You know, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With, for with the heart one believes in is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Many believe, but not many confess. Many believe, but many confess. Listen, if you're afraid of being looked down by people, more than you're afraid of standing before a holy God, then, you know, <laughs> you're in a sad state because the Lord is far greater. And, and Jesus said, if that's you, you're not worthy of the gospel. That's what he said in, in Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God wants to save you, but you must see the value in his son. And you must be willing to cast everything else aside and make him Lord of your life through confession. You are king. Have your way in my life. That's what he expects, nothing less. Look at verse 44. Listen to the cry of Jesus' heart. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, and that so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, come to the world, I did not come to the judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is crying out the same message today. It's the exact same words. Believe in me. Believe in me. Just believe in me. If you believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. It's, listen, a passionate and it's a persistent cry for the spiritually bankrupt. The Lord, the Lord is seeking lost people. You know, in it, if your heart's not broken for lost people, then there's a whole part of Jesus that you don't relate to because he came for the lost. He came for the sick. If your heart isn't broken for sinners who need a Savior, then you need to go before the Lord and ask him to change your heart because something's hardened you. Because we serve a Savior that loves people that are stuck in sin. And when we become religious about it, and we become hardened to it, and we start expecting the world to live like Christians, then we've completely missed the point of the gospel. We don't even get it at that point. And you know what? We slip into it easily, into this mode of religion where we just start living religiously. It's about what we do, go to church every day, carry our Bible, you know, speak words of truth and all that kind of stuff. But we're, we're living uh, religiously and not relationally. You know, it's just, it's just sterile. And the Lord would, would call you this morning. He would shake you up this morning and say, stop it, because that's not me. You know, have a, have a brokenness for people that are broken. You know, have a heart for people that are who destitute, who don't know the Lord. You know, don't look down on them. Try and lift them up like Jesus did. He extend, the Father extended his hand through his son, and he said, I want to save you. I love you. And if we're him, his ambassadors, we need to be doing the same thing. I'm not saying we all have the gift of evangelism, but we all have 
a compassionate heart from our Savior. If He's in you, His heart is in you. And he, lo- he, he loves people and He wants to see people saved. He is crying out today the same words, believe in me and believe in the one who sent me. And He says, if you don't, well, then there's judgment. He said, I didn't come this time to judge the world. I will, but not this time. This time I came to save the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That's why he came the first time. But understand, the second time Jesus comes, he's coming with a sword. And he's coming to judge. And he will judge the world. And the reality is, is, is it's kind of left in your hands. What you'll do with it, you'll believe. Simply receive Jesus. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. Jesus says there's judgment for those who don't do that. And, and here's, here's what you need to understand is that every time you hear the gospel, you're accountable to it. If you've not received the gospel, every time you hear it, you're accountable to it. And you also are probably becoming hardened to it. Every time you hear the idea, okay, we've got to repent again, and da, 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 this is Christianese. It's not Christianese. It's relationship. And that's how we relate to our Savior is through, uh, you know, we relate to our fathers through the Son, through the crucified Son. And so as we're living our lives and we stumble along the way, we repent. We turn away and we turn to the Lord. You know, it's a continual thing. But you're accountable to what you know and what you hear. And the more you hear, if you don't receive, you become hardened to just like the Holy Spirit convicting you of the things that you're doing in your life, and he says, don't do that, but you keep doing it. And then his voice fades a little bit, and then it fades a little bit more as he continues to convict you. It fades a little bit more to where he's non-existent, where you can't hear him anymore because you've hardened your heart against him. You know, the Lord wants you to know this morning that he loves you, that he saved you, and that he wants you to believe. And I'm not just talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers. You know, I think the church is kind of filled with unbelief. In general, we're, we're Christians, we're, 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 we're kind of reading the word, we're, we're trying to live the word, but we're not believing. You know, and I would, I would tell you this morning, start believing. We have a Savior that produces hope in every situation. It doesn't matter how big the situation is, it doesn't matter what the issue is in your life, we have a God that is able and capable and who can do exceedingly abundantly more. This is not a cheerleading exercise. This is truth, that he can do exceedingly abundantly more in your life than you could ever hope or dream of. Will you believe it? That's the question. And he wants his church to rise up and start believing him and standing on his word and taking him for what he says and say, Lord, I'm going to believe you and trust you in this situation. And I'm not, as I doubt, I'm going to confess that to you. Lord, help, you know, here... I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's be honest. Let's let the Lord speak to us, man. Let's, let's let him live through us. But if we don't believe, we can't do it. He can't do it. He couldn't do any works in his hometown because they didn't believe. Can he do works in his church today? Only you can answer that question. Are you believing? He wants you to believe. Will you believe him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just your goodness to us, Lord. And how you relate to us, God, that you can, you've identified with us in every weakness, Lord. You know our sorrow. You know our pain. You know our suffering, Lord. And you know that there are hours that you designed and fashioned for us. And so this morning, God, we're just asking and help us believe in those things. 
We're asking you to help us to increase our faith, Lord, to, to trust you and to believe in you in moments where it seems like there is no hope. We know that you are an extraordinary God and you're miraculous in all that you do. And we read account after account after account of how you've done wonderful things in people's lives. And yet we're not experiencing that in our life. And maybe it's simply because we don't believe it. Lord, there are many here this morning that believe but need help in their unbelief. And so we're asking for you right now in the heart of every person here that, that is, is feeling that way, Lord, that you would just give them a supernatural ability to believe. We know faith comes from you, Lord. You give us a measure of faith to believe. And then as we exercise that faith, God, you cause it to blossom. So we're asking you this morning, God, to help us to take a step in the faith that you've given us to believe. That you would fill us with that reckless abandonment of what we know, Lord, and trust you at what your word says. Father, I'd be amiss if I didn't ask if there was someone here this morning that didn't have a relationship with you, if they need to come to Christ, that they do that today. You're screaming to the world, believe. Believe in me. Cried out from the cross, believe in me. As you walked out of the grave, you said, believe in me. And you're calling your church this morning to believe in you. And there, anyone here this morning that doesn't have that relationship with you, you're calling them out and you're saying, believe in me today and I'll save you, I'll forgive you. And if that's you this morning, you just need to confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, I'm crowning you king of my life. I'm confessing my sin to you. I, I'm turning away from my darkness this morning. I don't even know how to do that, but I'm asking you to help me to just turn away. I'm, I want you to be Lord. And I believe that I can do this because you died for me and you rose again from the dead for me. And I believe that you're calling me on the same path, Lord, to die to self and to live for you. So this morning, I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior, and I want to live the rest of my life for you. So make me a Christian. And I thank you in Jesus' name. And if that's you this morning, praise the Lord if that's you. For the rest of us, as we end with this time of worship, just, you know, the altar's always open. But I would say, if there's things in your life right now that, you know, you're waffling over believing, that you would take a step forward and you would believe in God. You would just come and you'd say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Whatever that looks like. And again, as the light of the world is in you, we're called to walk in light. If, if you're not walking in light, just get right with the Lord. That's his expectation for you is that you would come confessing and turning over your life. And so we're just going to take a few minutes to do that and I'm sorry I'm running a little late, but hey, we let the spirit move after 1130 sometimes. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.